Welcome back to our series called Walking with Jesus. What we're doing simply in this series is we are going through Jesus' ministry kind of in chronological and geographical order. We're literally following Jesus through three or three and a half years of ministry. And we're going to stop at various places along the way, and we're going to see some of the things Jesus taught to the people and in the places where he spoke these words. Draw some ideas, and I hope one of the side benefits will be by doing this in the next seven, seven lessons that you begin to see the coherence of Jesus' message. I don't want you to think about Jesus' teaching as, oh, there's a good moral teaching, and oh, that's a great parable, and oh, that's a really way to be a good person, or oh, that's how I'm going to be saved. really want you to see how everything ties together. So that's what we're doing as we follow Jesus through the land of Israel. Let me pray for us, and we will jump into this lesson. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We're grateful that we have the ability to come together and to reason from your word, that we have the freedom in this country to speak what we believe to be true, to work for the good of everyone around us, to reflect your love and your compassion and your mercy. I do pray for everyone listening, everyone watching, that you would be with them, that your spirit would surround them, and Lord, lead us where we need to go. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our last lesson, we were talking about a key idea. And so I want to recap briefly because this idea is critical to understanding Jesus' ministry on a deeper level. And it's going to come up over and over again. And it's what we called in our last lesson the Exodus story or the Exodus motif. Very briefly, the story of the Exodus, think approximately 1400 BC, 1400 years before Christ, Israelites, slaves in Egypt, God sends Moses, a prophet, a deliverer, he leads them out of slavery into the desert or wilderness, and we looked at what that would look like in our last lesson, but into the wilderness where they spend 40 years of testing and refining their faith. At the, uh, as they leave, they went through the Red Sea, if you remember, and then they go to the wilderness, they end up crossing through the Jordan River and entering into the promised land, the land where they are no longer slaves, they are free, they are God's people. That's basically the Exodus story, the motif, if you will. We looked at Jesus' story as he begins his ministry. We talked about he left Galilee and he went, I'm going to show you a map so you can see where we've left Jesus in this time. This is the Roman province of uh, Judea, but basically think the nation of Israel in Roman times. What I mean by that is the time right around Jesus' ministry. These names that you see here are the Roman provinces. For example, Galilee in the north, where I've just marked that. You see Samaria, that's the, that the province in the middle, Judea in the south, and then you see the various, the Decapolis area, Perea. We're going to talk about the various uh, administration of these provinces later. But for now, I want you to recall that Jesus was, we think, baptized in the Jordan River, there probably near Jericho. He spent 40 days in the wilderness and then in our lesson now, he's going to move on to Jerusalem. But before he does, let me draw some parallels. 
So remember our Exodus story. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea lived centuries before Matthew, centuries before Jesus. And Hosea spoke some words that God had told him. And he said, God says this, and he's speaking to the Israelites, centuries before Jesus, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, what's God speaking about in that time? What's Hosea quoting? He's talking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. He's saying to them, you are my children. And so he refers to Israel, the group of people, as my son, if you will. He said, out of Egypt I called my son, meaning I sent my deliverer and I brought my people out of Egypt. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, fast forward to the time of Jesus, he quotes that prophecy, he quotes that statement, and he says it refers to Jesus. If you remember, when Jesus was born, Herod the Great tried to kill him, killed all the babies under two years old in the Bethlehem area. But Joseph and Mary had been warned, and they took Jesus to Egypt where he would be safe from Herod and the Roman authorities. Later, he comes back to grow up in Nazareth. Matthew quotes that passage, and he says, Out of Egypt I called my son, literally referring to Jesus. Well, which one is it? It's both. Because you see Matthew's making this, intentionally making this parallel. Just as God brought his people out of Egypt, he has brought his son, Jesus, out of Egypt. When the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, says they were baptized as they came between the waters, that God had turned their direction. He had cleansed them of their slavery and brought them out. Where does Jesus go? Goes to John the Baptist, Jordan River, and he's baptized. Israelites go to the wilderness where they spend 40 years. Jesus, his next move is into the desert, the wilderness, where he spends 40 days and the devil comes to tempt him or test him. You also have this really interesting prophecy that Moses speaks in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So he's at the end of his life and he's speaking to the Israelites, I think 1400 BC. He says, the Lord will raise up someone from among your brothers, meaning an Israelite, like me. You must listen to him. That was commonly understood as a messianic prophecy, that at some point the Messiah would come. He would be like Moses. In what sense would he be like Moses? Well, he'd be a great prophet. He would speak directly from God. But notice what's happening here is Moses went up to Mount Sinai. He spent 40 days and 40 nights communing with God. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting. And so you see Jesus being cast as the deliverer as a Moses figure. Now, Jesus is far greater than Moses. He is indeed that Messiah Moses spoke about. But I want you to see that the New Testament takes pains to make all these touch points. So Jesus' ministry begins to play out the Exodus. And in fact, I'm going to argue the Exodus happened so that we can understand what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And that is what he did in this historical sense with Israel he's going to do in a cosmic sense with Jesus. So I want you to remember that Exodus motif. I want you to think about the parallels in Jesus' ministry. He's going to tap into those ideas to explain even bigger concepts to the people. Well, when he left 
the desert where he had been tempted, he moves into Jerusalem. And so we'd like to talk about three things that happened to him in this period of time. Now, we're still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, so we're probably 26 or 27 AD, because I want you to think about these. This is not once upon a time Jesus did this. These are real events happening in real history, going to a conclusion that's very, very real, a conclusion that involves a cross and an empty tomb. Well, let's see what happens. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. I'm going to pause there, if you don't mind, and tell you why they're doing this. Basically, you get it. he goes into the temple courts. They're selling these animals because when people came to the temple, they'd have to make sin offerings. At certain times, you would make sacrifices to basically, as we've talked about before, postpone the debt on your sin. It didn't make up for your sin, but basically it postponed the debt. And so the law of Moses said at certain times people would come and make a sin offering, and they would slaughter those animals on the altar, and they would offer them up to God. Now, the animals that they mentioned, by the way, is cattle and sheep were what people who could afford it, that's what you were supposed to do. The dove, Leviticus chapter 5, talks about people who are too poor to sacrifice cattle or sheep, could sacrifice a dove. And so that's why these animals are being sold. They're being sold there to people who didn't bring them. But here's the catch. There's more going on than you might think. You might think, well, hey, that's a good service. And it could have been a good service. The problem is these animals had to be declared by the priest to be without blemish. In other words, it couldn't be crippled. They couldn't be sick. They basically had to be whole, healthy animals. You would give God the best of what you had, not the worst of what you had. And so there's a lot of reason to think that kind of just like airport food, you know, they're charging a little more for these animals, but you have a guarantee that the priest will say, your sacrifice is okay. If you bring yours from home, who knows, the TSA might take it from you. In other words, the priest might not approve yours. And so there's kind of a racket going on here. So it sounds like they're trying to be helpful but there's evidence that not so much. Now, the money changers, that's an interesting thing. Why would you need money changers there? Well, it was required for the Jewish families that came there to make their sin offerings that you would have to pay a tax to support the temple. And it was half of a Jewish shekel. It was a half shekel tax. Here's the catch. You had to pay it in shekels. Well, shekels are Jewish money. They're not used anywhere else. I mean, Jewish shekels aren't used anywhere else. Nobody used that money except in the temple. Why do they use that in the temple? Well, if you came and you had a Roman coin, a denarius or something, it was going to have the picture of one of the emperors on it. It was going to have something about it. Well, Jews thought that was idolatry. You didn't put pictures or images of people on anything. In fact, the Jews didn't have statues of Moses or pictures, you know, of the prophets. They didn't have any of that. They thought that was idolatry. So you couldn't take this denarius and say, here's my tax money. You had to go say, okay, I need a half shekel coin so I can pay my tax. How many denarii do I need to give you for a half shekel? Well, then, as now, there's money to be made, right, in the uh, currency exchange. 
And so that's what was happening. So what you have is kind of a little bit of a commerce going on here. We're selling animals at a pretty good premium, but we'll guarantee the priests will be okay with it. And, oh, sure, we'll change your Roman money for a half shekel. How do I know how much it should be? You just trust us. How else could you know? Nobody used shekels. So you basically have a situation here where people are kind of being forced into uh, a seller's market. So he came into the temple courts. He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, out of ropes, and he drove all of them from the temple area, the sheep, the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers and spilled all their coins. And to those who sold the doves, he said, get those out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal or enthusiasm for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? You're going to see this over and over, by the way. Jews were basically, what are they basically saying is, hey, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to do this? In fact, the only person that could give you the authority to do this is if you happen to be a miracle worker from God. So pop out a miracle here or else you're in trouble. And so that's what they're saying. You're going to need to show us a sign that you actually have some kind of divine authority because if you don't, you carry no weight around here. The temple police are going to come haul you away. So Jesus said, oh, I have a sign for you. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Remember, he's crucified and three days later, he's raised again. Of course, they don't understand that. And after he was raised from his dead, though, his disciples remembered what he had said. His disciples don't understand this either. Jesus has so many brilliant little things. I call them time delay sayings or time release. You know, you take medicine sometimes, and this will work for 12 hours because it's timed release. Jesus says a lot of things, teaches a lot of things that won't make sense until later, and this is one of them. But after he was raised from the dead, his disciples go, aha, that's what he was talking about, and it all comes together. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. By the way, this little side note for you Bible scholars, this helps date when this is happening. If they are accurate, which there's no reason to believe they're not. It has taken 46 years to build this temple. In fact, it took about 80-some years. I can't remember the exact dates. They started in 20 or 19 B.C., and they ended in 63 A.D. So what, about 83 years to fully complete the whole temple. So if they've been building it for 46 years, that makes this about the year 26 or 27. AD. So yet another corroboration for when we're working. And usually in the Bible, you kind of need to do a little detective work like that because it doesn't always say overtly when and where we are. So he comes in, he overturns the tables. I thought this would be a good place to kind of give you an idea of where he was and what this looked like. So let me show you a few pictures. I'd like to start with the modern day Temple Mount. Now this is not what it looked like in Jesus' time. Obviously, Muhammad won't be born for another 550 years after Jesus, uh, actually 570 AD. 
But on the Temple Mount right now, and this is the big retaining walls all around that Herod the Great built. I'm not sure you can see that very well. Let me change that just a tad. So you've got these big retaining walls that Herod built. And by the way, this, we're looking from the Mount of Olives. We're standing on the Mount of Olives, and we are to the east. Okay, so this is west over here. So we're looking at it, and today what you see is you have two mosques here. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque over there on the south end, and this is the Dome of the Rock. That mosque is, uh, both of those mosques are very holy places, but the Dome of the Rock is a very sacred space to the Muslims, but that location where that mosque sits is where the temple was. By the way, I know you can't tell it from this picture, but the temple was about one and a half times taller than this mosque, and this is not small. This is a beautiful, big building, but the temple was one and a half times taller than that. Again, so it's the temple sat right there in that place on Herod's Temple Mount. Let me give you a diagram. This is what the temple basically looked like. We're looking from the same direction, by the way. We're looking you know, from the east, Mount of Olives, right at this temple. But here's how the temple looked in his time. First, you have the Golden Gate. Should have showed you that. You can still see it in the picture today. Then you have out here this court of the Gentiles. There's a big courtyard out here. And this area around the temple is where non-Jews could go. Non-Jews could come into that area, and it was intended to still be holy, a place for all the nations could come and admire. Now, they couldn't go any further than this. In fact, there was a sign on a little wall there that said, if you're not a Jew and you go past this point, we will kill you, and it's your own fault. And the Romans said, fair enough, you warned them. But this is the court of the Gentiles. This is likely where they've set up these tables. And so what's Jesus angry about? He's angry about a lot of things. He's angry about them exploiting people, but he's also angry and says, all the nations come to see the glory of God, to see what his people have done, and what do they walk into? An airport gift shop, you know? They're selling T-shirts, been to Jerusalem, and all I got was this T-shirt. You know, he, Jesus is upset on a lot of levels here, exploiting people, but also this is what, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, a holy place. Gentiles come in, and what do they think of our God? They see you selling all of this stuff. And so there's a lot of reasons that Jesus is righteously indignant about this and upturns, overturns the tables. But to go on, once you go into the temple area, you have the court of the women. So Jewish women could be in here. Jewish men could be in here. Then priests, and then finally the high priest only in the Holy of Holies. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I mean, it's very interesting, but our lesson is more what Jesus did there. And I just kind of wanted to give you a sense of what that looked like. There is a great model of this at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And so it's, a, it's built to scale. So what I'm about to show you is not real, obviously, but it is a model of Herod's temple. So these are really great pictures. And I'm going to keep the perspective the same. We're looking from the Mount of Olives from the east, looking at the temple. Notice, you see here again, this is, you know, you've got the court of the Gentiles out here. Once you go inside, you have to be a Jew, court of the women, the men, the priests, the holy of holies. 
But it's a really good view of what that temple would have looked like. Imagine that made out just shining in the sun, and it's white marble, and it's gold all over it. It was unbelievably beautiful as a tribute to God. This, if you remember, is the second temple. In other words, Solomon built a temple back in the 10th century B.C., think 900s B.C., and then it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, and then over time it kind of got rebuilt a little at a time until Herod, 37 B.C., Herod the Great, decided we're going to build this thing right. We're going to put it back to the way Solomon had it. In fact, we might even make it better than Solomon's. So if you read anything that's even mildly academic, sometimes you'll come across this idea of Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism is the time when this temple is around. It's not the time of Solomon. It's the time later. Okay. Just a fun factoid. Amaze your friends at parties with that. So that's what it looks like. Here's one more picture of that, a little bit higher up. You can kind of see what the temple complex itself would look like. I just think this is really interesting. It's a, it's a very good reproduction. It's probably the best way to envision what did this look like in Jesus' time. That's what the temple would have looked like. Imagine that just filled with people, particularly because, remember when he went to Jerusalem? It was near the time of the Passover. So there are thousands upon thousands of Jews there doing sacrifices in the temple courts. The place is packed, and it's very big. I mean, that Temple Mount is huge. Even so, packed with Jews. So there's a lot going on at that time. But that's what it looked like. So he overturns the tables. He becomes kind of righteously angry. And you're going to see that theme move through Jesus' time in Jerusalem. Let me show you what I mean. What else happens while he's there? Later, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This may be the day later. It may be three or four days later. We don't know. But while he was in Jerusalem, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N. This is the Jewish ruling council. They made the laws for the Jews. They enforced the laws for the Jews. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, meaning he was of the strictest observant sect, and he was one of the 70 on the Sanhedrin that ruled over the Jews. Romans ruled the area, but they said, you Jews, you just make your own laws, do what you want to do, as long as you don't kill anybody, and as long as you pay your taxes, have at it, boys. And so the Sanhedrin basically administered Jewish justice throughout Israel, and then the Romans just made sure the taxes got paid. So that's who Nicodemus is. He said, Rabbi, came to Jesus at night, because at that time, Jesus was an outsider. They're like, I don't know about this guy. He didn't come up through the usual schools. Did he go to Princeton or Yale? I don't think so. I didn't see him there. You know, so where did this guy come from, and what is he doing? We're starting to hear maybe he's doing some miracles. He apparently overturned the tables. He seems to be zealous for God. What's going on with this guy? Well, he's done some miracles, and they've heard about it. So Nicodemus says this, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with him. When he says we, he probably means a few of the Pharisees and maybe even a few of the ruling council, certainly not all of them. But he said, look, I'm, I'm a man who earnestly seeks after God, and I realize you have to be from God to be able to do the things that you are doing. And so... In reply, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
born a second time. Now, there's a little play on that word there because that Greek word can mean being born again or being born from above. Which is it? Well, probably both. But Nicodemus understands it as being born again, as we'll see in a moment. But I want to, before we go on, I want you to remember he's talking about the kingdom again. If you remember in our last lesson, we talked about the idea of salvation, Jesus' idea of liberating us from sin. Think the Exodus story. We are slaves to sin. He has come to liberate us and bring us into freedom, eternal freedom. We think of that as salvation. But Jesus didn't preach. He wasn't going around preaching, hey, come to me, change your mind, be saved, and I'll stamp your hand and you get into heaven. He said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here. So we talked about the idea of salvation is not just a momentary change, although God does translate us from death to life. I'm not denying that. But Jesus speaks about a whole new life in this kingdom. And so you're going to see him using kingdom language because the way Jesus conceives of what he's doing is he's taking people out of the kingdom of this world, think Egypt, think slaves, think Satan is your master, and he's bringing them into the kingdom of God, think the promised land, think heaven, think Israel, think all of these non-slave areas. He's going to bring you into the kingdom and then we're going to live like kingdom people. We're going to live in the kingdom in the way you live in the kingdom. You know, this is not a bad way to think about what Jesus is doing. He's teaching, is explaining to you and me, what's it like to live in the kingdom? What kind of people do we become? How do we act? We got adopted into God's family. And so now it's how do we, how do we act in this family? What do we do? What are our family rules? How do we bring honor to our parents? How do we glorify God? Think about what Jesus is doing as explaining what kingdom life looks like. That's what he says to Nicodemus. He says, I'll tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Well, Nicodemus is really interested in the kingdom, but he can't pass up this born again thing. How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus said. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. By the way, every word says I tell you the truth is the word amen, which means truly or, hey, this is, this is right. He says, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So think about what's happening here. Is Jesus is, he overturned the tables in the temple. Now he's overturning all of the preconceived ideas of the Pharisees. Think about what, the, what is happening. The Pharisees were very much into behavior. The law of Moses was training the, the Jews to the point where Jesus could come. And so the 613 laws in the law of Moses and all the other rules the Pharisees had added on were basically behavioral. And what were you trying to do? 
what most religions in the world today, by the way, try to do, and that is I somehow need to change the way I behave or think or whatever so that I can achieve an acceptable level. If you're a Buddhist, you're going to achieve nirvana. If you're a Muslim, you're going to get to go into you know, heaven with Allah. But if you're a Jew, you're basically trying to live up to what God said is the way his people live. Jesus turns that around and he said, that's good. He said, but here's what I'm about to tell you, is that the kingdom of God doesn't come from behavior modification. It's not a self-help book you can find at the bookstore. It comes from completely becoming a new person. So the idea of being born again, and you're going to see this all over the New Testament, Romans is going to say, when we were baptized with Christ, we were buried with him in death and raised to walk in newness of life. It says our old self was crucified and died with Christ. In other words, Christ is not here to make better people. He's here to make brand new people. You can't become better enough. You can't be good enough. That's what's so unique about what Jesus is teaching. He said, you can just be less of a sinner in the kingdom of Satan if you want to. And we all have friends like that. Sometimes we'll say, wow, my neighbor Joe, he acts better than some of the Christians I know. Great point. Your friend Joe is an excellent sinner. I mean, think about it. All you're saying is that's a well-behaved person in the kingdom of death. Whereas a Christian is on a different path. And Jesus said, it's not about how well you act. It's about, are you a new person? Has the spirit of God, notice the spirit language all through this passage, has the spirit of God transformed us? When we repent and we surrender to Christ, it is not an act just of our will. We don't get saved because we decide to. We respond to God's grace, and the Spirit does a work in us. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. And obviously, that's very hard for Nicodemus to understand. So not only is he overturning the tables, he's also overturning everything they thought about what it was like to be in God's kingdom. By the way, I don't know where Nicodemus came to Jesus. I don't know if he was staying you know, at the uh, Amer Suites in Jerusalem, but I'll tell you where he spent a lot of time, and I thought you might want to see this. You remember I told you we were standing on the Mount of Olives? We were looking across, by the way, the Kidron Valley. It goes down, then goes up, and there's the Temple Mount. Let's stand on the Temple Mount and look back the other way because Jesus spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives. It was called that because in those days, today there are a lot of olive groves up there, but in those days, there are no buildings, obviously, but they're just, just all olive groves. You're just growing olives, and you've got olive press there. In fact, Gethsemane means the place of the olive press, where you would press the olives and get the olive oil. So the Garden of Gethsemane is somewhere right there on that Mount of Olives, but that's standing at the temple. Now we're looking back at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus and his disciples, give you another view of the Mount of Olives, spent a lot of time there. And I don't know if that's where Nicodemus came to him or not, but often they would leave Jerusalem, they'd walk down that valley, walk up, and then they would sleep in the olive groves. The traditional site, I don't think this is the actual site, but the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane has a Catholic church there now, no surprise but they have some of the most beautiful 
old, old olive trees. These are ancient olive trees. And they have some beautiful old olive trees in this area. And you'll see some of them on the Mount of Olives as well. But imagine Jesus and his disciples, <clears throat> pardon me, just amongst these olive trees in the groves. And they would sit there and they would talk and they would sleep. They would get up again. They would sing hymns. They would, he would teach them. They would go back. I don't know if that's where Nicodemus came to him, but I think it's entirely possible. And so I kind of wanted you to get a feel where Jesus was spending a lot of his time when he was in Jerusalem and where this may very well have happened. <clears throat> so Jesus upsets the tables and Jesus upsets their idea of what it looks like to be a follower of God, what this new kingdom of God is going to look like. Well, our passage goes on. It says, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing even more disciples than John. Well, they were worried about John. John's getting this big following, and he's just preaching, repent. The kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is coming, and the kingdom of God will be here. Now, they didn't understand exactly what the kingdom of God was. They thought it was going to be a political entity. But as Nicodemus just found out, oh, it's going to be far, far bigger than that, far more inclusive than that. Well, the Pharisees heard that, and they began, uh, in other words, to get a little riled up. He said, but it wasn't Jesus baptizing, his disciples did. But when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea. Jerusalem is in that little province of Judea in the south of Israel. And went back once more to Galilee. I'll show you a map in just a second. He's basically going to go from the southern part to the northern part. Back to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob, 1,800 years before, way, way, way before the time of Jesus. So he came to Sakar, and Jacob's well was there. In other words, wells last a long time, by the way. Jacob may have dug that well 1,800 years ago, and it's still giving water. That is one of the things in the Middle East that doesn't move around. I mean, you get yourself, by the way, today in that spot, there's this really great 100-foot deep well, still gives water. So it's, it's a great... Uh, way to find locations. So anyway, near the well of Jacob. And so Jesus was tired from his journey, and it was about the sixth hour. I think that's likely noon. In other words, there are two different time schemes, but long story, short version, it's probably about noon. And Jesus is tired, and he sits down at the well. By the way, you ever think about Jesus getting tired and thirsty and hungry and hurting you ever think about Jesus, you know, kind of getting a little plantar fasciitis, you know, or, oh man, my hip hurts today. Jesus was human as well as God, and so he suffered all of the things that you and I suffer. And so he's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty, and he sat down on the well. Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to try to buy food. The Samaritan woman is shocked. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Further than that, Jews don't talk to women very much either. I mean, she's kind of got a double thing going on here. So Jesus speaks to her and uh, says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would ask him. In other words, you would be asking me to give you living water. Sir, the woman says, you don't even have anything to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? 
And Jesus answered, everybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus begins to start dropping these ideas. Kingdom of God, it's not measuring up. It's becoming a new person. It's not about just leaving Egypt and you're no longer a slave and now you're a free person. It's about eternal life. You see how he begins to paint the picture of what he's here to do? He's going to cast it in Exodus terminology, but he's going to expand this, obviously, to eternity. So let me show you where we're at. So as Jesus leaves Judea, Jerusalem, in the province of Judea, Jews typically wouldn't go through Samaria. They'd go over here, and they'd go up the Jordan Valley, and then they would go into Galilee. They would go around because they, they considered it impure to even go through Samaritan territory. Why? Well, you may know this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but way back when, this whole area was Jewish. Think back in the time of David and Solomon, 900 B.C. They're all Jews. There are 12 tribes of them. You've got about 10 tribes living in what's labeled here Samaria on this map. You've got a couple tribes living in what's labeled Judea on this map. Well, they end up in a civil war, and they split after Solomon. Samaria, those ten tribes say, hey, we cannot get along with you guys, we're making our own country. Two in the south, Judea, we're making our own country. And so in 722 B.C., so maybe 150 years later, the Assyrians, bad, bad people, from the north come, and they conquer that northern ten tribes. When you hear about the lost tribes of Israel, that's when they got lost. You know why? Because the Assyrians, when they conquered an area, deported a lot of the people, scattered them all over the place. They figured, hey, how are you going to rebel if you don't even live in your land anymore? And then they took people from the other lands they conquered, they settled them into your place. And so Samaria from 722 B.C., next 700 years till the time of Jesus, very ethnically mixed. They're not purebred Jewish people anymore. There were some Jews there, but there were people from everywhere around that the Assyrians mixed. Didn't happen to Judea. They didn't conquer that southern part. So ethnically, the Jews of Judea and of the Galilee, by the way, they thought the Samaritans, you know, you say you're Jews, but yeah, not really. You're kind of the black sheep of the family here, okay? Also, the Samaritans worshipped Yahweh, they worshiped God, but they didn't worship him in the same way or in the same place. Oh, that would have made it doubly bad. They didn't come to Jerusalem to worship. They had their own temple, which I'll show you where that was in just a minute. So they were despised by the Jews. And so Jews typically wouldn't go through there. So what does Jesus do? I think I'll just go right through Samaria. He's not only going to upset the tables... He's not only going to upset the idea of what it means to follow God, he's going to upset all of the social barriers. He's going to not only say what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God, he's going to redefine who could be in the kingdom of God. Because the Jews said, us, the rest of you guys, you're toast. Jesus says, actually, even they can become children of God. And so he goes through Samaria. He gets to this little town, Sakar, near modern-day Shechem, for those of you that have been to Israel. It's right by Mount Gerizim, which will figure in here in just a minute. Let me show you what Samaria looks like today. Here is a uh, Palestinian. It's hard to know what that actually means, but he's an Arab, and he's uh, 
shepherd. And this is what Samaria, that center part, looks like. It's just a beautiful area, very fertile. Uh, it's now part of the nation of Israel, of course. But this is kind of what that area of Samaria looks like. Not too hilly, very fertile, a lot of sheep, a lot of grazing going on. Well, what does the town of Sakar look like? That's what that little village looks like today. We're looking to the north. Mount Gerizim is on our left in this picture, but that village today is where we believe Jesus stopped in Sakar. That's, it, it contains that name today, and this is probably where he was. Obviously, it's grown a lot. We have a lot more people there, but this is the village. Let me show you another picture of it. Now we're kind of on Mount Gerizim, right beside it, and we're kind of looking down at the area of Sakar. So he comes there, sits on the well, kind of has this interaction that many of you have probably read before, but he breaks, the key thing is he's breaking these social barriers. It's like, you're talking to a woman. Can they be in the kingdom of God? You're talking to a Samaritan. Surely they can't be in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is, is basically overstepping a lot of boundaries, turning a lot of things upside down, isn't he? Physically, turning tables upside down, but he's turning theology upside down. He's turning social structure upside down. He's not saying all these people are good people. They're all sinners, like you and me. But he's saying everyone can repent and everyone can follow me and be a child of God. And so that's radical at that time. You have to understand how radical Jesus was. Well, let's see how he finishes his conversation with her. So the woman says to him, she's, I love this woman. She's got a, just a taste of attitude. He's like, oh, living water? Right. I imagine this woman, she probably smokes like two packs a day. She's got a kind of a raspy voice. She's like, yeah, smart aleck. You're going to give me living water. You don't even have a cup to drink out of. So I think I read this like she's getting a little snarky with him, right? Said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to come here and draw water anymore. And he said, well, I'll tell you what little Miss uh, Snarky, why don't you go get your husband and come back and we'll chat? She's like, ooh, good one. She says, I don't have a husband. He goes, actually, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So he takes a little wind out of her sails and said, listen, I think I know you better than you think I do. And so now she gets a little more respectful, doesn't she? And she gets sincere. We've broken through the pretense. He said, sir, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, woman, a time is coming when you will not worship the father on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, you're wrong. We Jews worship what we do know. For salvation comes from the Jews. But a time is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father speak, seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I am he. To our knowledge in the scriptures, now this is kind of interesting, to our knowledge in the scriptures, I'm not telling you we know everything Jesus said to everybody. Obviously, we do not. In the scriptures, this is the first person that Jesus actually came out and said, 
I am the Messiah. His disciple, he hasn't told his disciples that. I mean, they may start to get some suspicions as the three-year ministry goes on, but a Samaritan woman is likely the first person that Jesus said, I am the Messiah. Now, I'm going to leave the story there. It's an interesting story, you know, that she goes back and many of the Samaritans in the village are converted. But for our purposes, as we go along, I just want you to see another theme that's going to run through Jesus' ministry, how he turns things upside down. He's basically saying the kingdom of God is like nothing you have ever imagined. It's not something you can be good enough to get into. It's something you have to become a new person to be in. It's something that's open to anyone who will repent and trust in me. Well, this area right here, by the way, is I uh, thought you might appreciate seeing what that looks like, but this Mount Gerizim today, this is what it looks like. So now we're in the village, and we're looking up at the Mount Gerizim. And I know, those of you that are listening, we have some people that listen from places that actually have real mountains. If you're from Colorado, you're going, that's a mountain. In Israel, that's a mountain, okay? So Mount Gerizim. And here's another view of uh, it. And here is a modern picture of modern day. Now we're, this is current time. Samaritans going up onto Mount Gerizim. The temple from her day that was up there has been destroyed. They still worship. There's still a small number of people who call themselves Samaritans and say, we are descendants of the people who lived here. And we still worship in the same way that those Samaritans did then. The Samaritans, how did they worship? They had the Old Testament, basically, the Torah, the five books of Moses, but they had their own version of it. And guess where you were supposed to worship in their version? Oh, yes, Mount Gerizim. But there are still a handful of people today who still carry on that, a little group of that Samaritan religion. Very close to Judaism, but not the same thing. And so... Let me just kind of summarize by saying this. I hope as you see it, you see him in Jerusalem. You see him moving toward Galilee up through Samaria. You see him kind of overstepping boundaries, but not just to step over boundaries. Sometimes today it's popular to think of Jesus as, oh, he was a rebel. Oh, he was definitely subversive. And in fact, the gospel is still subversive. You who are followers of Christ, you are subversive, but not for the, just the point of being different. We don't go around, take our Bible, and start hitting people over the head and say, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. And I'm just going to do things differently because I'm so much better than you are. That's not what Jesus was doing. He's just quietly living out what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And people who followed him, meaning I spend my time with you, I see what you do, and I want to be like you. And in fact, the very spirit of God that's in me is shaping me into who you are. We become the image of Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 8. And so what's Jesus doing? He's not trying to be different. He's not trying to upset anybody. He's not a rebel without a cause. What he is is just quietly showing you how different it looks to live in the kingdom. Some of those ways, as we'll see with the Sermon on the Mount, are moral. Some of those ways are the compassion and the concern and care. And so what looks to us like a Jesus who could be co-opted as, oh, that's Jesus, the guy who loves immigrants. That's Jesus, the guy who's all about social justice. He's always the Jesus who is showing us what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And so that's what he's doing here. But that's a great message for you and me, is that as we follow Christ, don't be surprised if you begin to 
turn a lot of the things that our world believes and does upside down. We kind of step across some barriers our world has made. We turn over some of the things that our world is doing that's so wrong. In other words, our lives ought to look a little bit like that as we live out that kingdom idea. So we've seen the Exodus motif as we follow Jesus through, and now as he goes to Jerusalem and Samaria, he begins to start showing what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And that's your challenge this week. I'd like you to think about the idea of don't think behaviorally, don't think thou shalt, thou shalt nots. Are there ways that you should behave? Of course, just like you're in my family. I don't know about you, but when my kids were growing up, they wanted to do some things that we did not believe were good for them, and they were not things that we were going to permit. But they had some friends who could. And so, needless to say, our little, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-old little junior lawyers here began to make their case. And they would say, well, Susie can do this, and Bobby can do this, and surely you're not telling me that there's anything wrong with them or their parents. And you know kind of how we got around that was we say this, no, in fact, we're not telling you that. What we're telling you is that in our family, this is what we do, and this is what we don't do. But in our family, this is how we behave. We don't do that, or we don't go to that movie, or we don't play that first-person shooter game, or we do treat people who are outsiders differently and welcome them in. In other words, we do this because this is what we do in our family. Think about Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's saying, let me show you how we do things in our family, in the family of God. Think about that this week, and think about what you do as, is this how we do this in our family? Next, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, goes back home to Galilee, from Jerusalem all the way to the north in Galilee, and now some of the really interesting fireworks start, and that's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you guys very much.